be in Revelation 4. And while you're turning to here, let me just say um, I am extremely happy to be here in Sterling. Julie and I have been here for not even quite half a year yet, and we feel very much at home uh, and just loving it here um, with hanging out with the youth and the opportunity to share with you guys this morning uh, what's been placed upon my heart. Um, this kind of comes from, I was thinking about what it was I was going to uh, preach about today, and I was praying and thinking about it, and this is just something that God has been teaching me throughout about three years here uh, when I first heard uh, teaching very similar to this, and I wanted to share it with you because it's been something that has been very much a part of my heart the last few years. All right, so before we begin, we're going to do a little bit of a pop quiz. Um, So if you have your sermon notes and a pen and paper, feel free to jot those down. If you don't have that, just kind of answer it in your heads or think about how you'd answer these questions. So here we go. Why did God create mankind? Why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? So you can feel free to jot down a one-sentence answer or a couple words if you want. Why does God provide salvation for sinners? Why did Jesus become man? Why is the church to be unified? And last one is, why does God provide for our needs? You know, I'm sure all my students are like, oh, great, I come to church and all I get to do is take another test. Um, so, you know, it's spring break, come on, what, what am I doing? I'm giving them another pop quiz. All right, so now we're going to go ahead and look at some corresponding Bible passages that are related to those uh, six questions. Uh, question number one, why did God create mankind? Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So glory being the key word there. Uh, number two, why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? Exodus fourteen seventeen through 18, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. All right, number three, why does God provide salvation for sinners? Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first, hope, first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. All right, number four, why did Jesus become man? John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Number five, why is the church to be unified? John seventeen twenty two. the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one as we were one. Number six, why does God provide for our needs? Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Alright, so glory being the key word, uh, the title of this is Glory and Misplaced Worship. Uh, so we'll be focusing a lot on glory. 
Uh, if you're like me, when I first took a quiz similar to this, uh, we, I was working at camp. I had a youth speaker come in. Uh, he gave a talk about glory, and he did something similar, except it wasn't six questions. We had 20 questions we had to answer. Um, so it was a much longer quiz than the one we took this morning. Um, if you're like me, I, all I did is I put, like, the man side of things. You know, like, why did, why did God create mankind? It's like, well, because he loved us. Uh, just things like that, just focusing on the man part of it. Um, I've been realizing how much I mis- misunderstand God's God-centeredness. Um, so now, let's turn our attention to Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I stood in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was... There was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, and around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, we see in Revelation 4 here just a picture of the glory and grandeur of God. Um, it's an amazing sheen. It shows just how great and how infinitely great he is. Uh, he alone is worthy to receive all glory, honor, and power. Uh, this is a picture of a glorious God. So what is glory? Uh, is it a state of high honor? A brilliant, ra- radiant beauty? Or to use it as a verb, to rejoice proudly? Or maybe it's a combination of all three of those things. Um, and that, that's where, depending on where you are in Scripture, it can mean all three of those things. So they are a state of high honor, a brilliant, radiant beauty, and to rejoice proudly. So when the Bible speaks of that glory, uh, it, depending on the context, it can mean all those things. It's, I believe this is the forgotten theme of uh, creation, Scripture, and theology. And we often forget about Uh, God seeking his own glory. Uh, We experience those human implications and we ignore that as the primary point. It's just like us to take something which is about something else and to turn it all upon us. Um, You have heard me tell this story before, but when I was a student at Bryan College uh, in Dayton, Tennessee, there was this billboard uh, for a particular bank that was there and the sign claimed, it's all about you. And, like, and that's just, I guess, where we are. We think that life, even our theology, becomes all centered around ourselves. Um, I'm finding that I have an idolatrous theology, just focused on me and what it pertains to us. And forgetting the whole other side of God seeking his own glory. 
Um, I will admit, much of my following thinking is based on C.S. Lewis and John Piper, so if I sound smart, it's because they're smart, not because I'm smart. Um, So, you know, when you look at all those different passages that I flashed earlier, um, we see that God is God-centered. We, as I've been saying, have been mistakenly moving that God-centeredness to man-centeredness. Um, I think this is why we have such poor theology sometimes. It's like, you know, it's not just enough for us to, to meditate and think upon the glories of God, but we've got to think about what it means to us. But I suppose we need to address one question before we move to the uh, glory of God, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. living to that. Um, and that question is, does the self-centeredness of God, does the God-centeredness of God make him a complete egomaniac, somebody who's just entirely devoted to themselves? Well, there are three reasons that I'm going to give that it's a good thing that all the glory goes to God. Number one, God alone is worthy of all glory. We saw this in Revelation 4. God alone deserves all praise, glory, and admiration. The problem is in the way that, in which I stated the question. We have faulty views of humility and pride. We have a hard time trying to define those things. Humility is seeing ourselves or seeing oneself as we actually are. Pride is having an inflated view of self. So in this case, God is actually demonstrating humility and asking for all glory, praise, and honor to him. He alone is rec- deserves all of that. As Grudem says in his systematic theology about God's glory, the greatness of God's being, the perfection of all of his attributes, is something that we can never fully comprehend, but before which we can only stand in awe and worship. Thus, it is appropriate indeed that the visible manifestation of God be such that we would be unable to gaze fully upon it and that it would be so bright and that it would call forth both great delight and deep awe from us when we behold it in part. You know, I was reminded when Isaiah, in a similar passage, Isaiah 6, he approaches God's throne and all he does is like, woe is me, I'm a dead guy, I'm going to die because God is so glorious, he is so amazing, I, I shouldn't even be here. So, Number, reason number two why it's good that God gets all the glory is God's self-centeredness, his seeking his own glory, is also other-centered. Uh, it's a form of grace by creating us in his glory. Uh, in the words of the Westminster Confession, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, so bearing God's own image is a position of high honor. We are above all of creation. We alone have God's image upon us. Um, so God is actually goodness and his joyfulness. And being God has demonstrated that he wants to share that glory with other creatures, being us. Uh, it's, it's quite the interesting place that he has placed us in. But I think a lot of our problems come with glory because we think about it from a, a human perspective. For us to get more glory, typically somebody has to go down so we can go up. Um, I thought about this in sports. You know, in order for us to win a game, somebody has to lose. Um, But with God, it doesn't really work like that. We both win when God gets all the glory. Another pastor uh, related this to a space shuttle launch. Um, As you know, like, I think it was the Discovery. It was the last uh, mission for the Discovery, and they just launched just a while ago. Um, When that space shuttle goes off, we come out in droves to watch that design thing do what it's intended to do. That makes us excited. You know, when that shuttle goes up, everybody's like, Woo! That's awesome! That's a space shuttle launch! I mean, we get excited over that space shuttle launch. Uh, we get excited when we see design created things doing what it is that they were intended to do. Reason number three why God should get all the glory. Since God is creator, creation should praise him. 
Uh, since he created everything, creation should give credit where credit is due. Um, it's not because of us. We didn't will ourselves into existence despite what evolutionary people may have us believe. We didn't exist because we wanted to. Um, God is jealous for his glory, and he wants all that praise and glory to go to him. Uh, Exodus 25, we see that he is a jealous God. Uh, that's where he's given the Ten Commandments. Uh, he's not going to share his glory with anybody else. Isaiah 48, 11. He is jealous for the sake of his name. He wants all that worship to come to him. This is why in Romans 1, verses 18 through 25, God is so frustrated with misplaced worship. So I'll give you a moment to go ahead and turn there. So Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, so this passage highlights the chief sin of man, which is idolatry. Uh, We give credit and glory that is due to God to something else. So all of creation, uh, it says, gives glory to God, yet we are the only part of creation that has the audacity to look at God, to see his glory, and say, no, we're not going to give you that glory and that praise that is due to you. Uh, We are natural idolaters, making things more important to God. Um, As I said before, if our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then whatever we worship, give glory to, and give our affections to besides God, that is our idol. Um, That's what Paul is observing in Romans 1. Uh, We settle for those things that the moth and rust will destroy instead of the things that will last. Uh, We live in a culture and age of the third, third soil in the parable of the sower, where the thorns of cares of riches, pleasures, worldly life. They choke out that gospel seed that is in us. And we settle for those small, non-lasting pleasures when God offers us these infinitely large, eternal promises and pleasures. In other words, we take good things, not that those things are bad, but that they are just good things. But when they take the place of God, that's when it becomes an idol for us. Um, for me, when I was in high school, my idol would have been sports. I, I lived for sports. I loved football, um, baseball, basketball, all that, all those things. And really, there were two two times a year. You know, it was football season and getting ready for football season. Um, any any time between there, it, I didn't really count that. So one of my struggles is I had an offer to go play uh, football at a particular college, but I actually chose not to go there because I realized I was beginning to realize how much of a struggle it was for me to to make that my idol, to make that what my life was all about. Um, 
it may not be football or sports for you, but we live uh, in our American dream. We live for material possessions. I th- I'm finding that more and more I'm worried about keeping up with stuff. Uh, keeping up with those Joneses, you know, I can't let them get too far ahead. Uh, I've got to keep up with them. Um, I think that's why the individual in Jesus' parable who built extra storehouses for all those goods that he was receiving is, is called a fool. Because all those things that he is storing up for himself, he can't take it with him when, when we die. Uh, those things we can't carry with us. So why keep storing up for things that, you know, the moth and rust is going to destroy and things that are going to burn? Uh, we live for things that aren't going to follow us that after we die. We ignore the eternal wo- world which w- with which we were created for. Uh, we worship those things with our time, money, and resources. Uh, we give that to things that will not last. I get so f- irritated and frustrated with myself for settling for things that aren't going to last. Uh, I settle for things that are just plain good enough. I don't know if you guys have ever said that word, good enough. Um, it's like, oh, you know, eh, it's good enough, so I'll, I'll, I can handle that. No, I mean, our desires are much stronger for that. That's why C.S. Lewis has a key insight here. Uh, this is from his address, The Weight of Glory. If there lurks in the modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And that's just the thing. We are far too easily pleased. Uh, We find temporary satisfaction in temporary things instead of everlasting satisfaction in everlasting things. We get satisfied with the idols of our world, be it money, pleasure, power, relationships, success, sports, etc. I don't know what your particular issue may be. Uh, These things are not only empty in the end because we can't take those with us when we die, but are self-destructive. They end up actually destroying ourselves. This is why Jesus is so important. He is the only one who is the fulfillment and guide to infinite joy. In Jesus, we can find eternal life, joy, satisfaction, and purpose. In him and by him, we can fulfill our purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, I invite you to do so today, to find your guide into that infinite joy that God has promised. If you already have, I, can, I ask you to consider what idols it is that you may be worshiping besides God. Uh, delight yourself in him and in him alone. Furthermore, since creation, all of creation, is for God's glory, this thought propels us to be involved in missions. Uh, As John Piper points out, missions exist because worship for God does not exist. We took this morning, uh, take this morning for instance, we came together and we're worshiping God. I actually had a bit of a hard time coming up here because I was just enjoying uh, being out in the congregation and singing out to God, singing praises to his name. Um, That's why we do missions, because in the end, worship is going to endure for eternity. We saw that in Revelation 4, where these elders and these creatures are bowing before God and just worshiping him and adoring God for God. Uh, I cannot wait for that opportunity that we have when we finally get to heaven and are able to worship God in all his glory. So, again, I invite you to respond in two ways. 
Uh, if you have not trusted in Christ, trusted in Jesus for the first time, do so today. Uh, and if you already have, uh, take this mo- moment, take this morning, and repent of those idols and turn to God and delight yourself in Him and Him alone. Let's pray.